Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's get the call from the street, shall we, and bring in David Kelly, JP Morgan Asset Management Chief Global Strategist. David, fantastic to have you with us on the phone. Just walk me through what you want to hear, what you want to see in that statement as that call starts between G7 finance chiefs and central bankers. Well, I think there needs to be uh, an air of calm. I don't want to see immediate action, actually. I think that uh, the Fed meets on March 17th, 18th. I think that would be a good time to put in a rate cut. The problem is if you put in the rate cut right now, and then people people will say, well, what's next? And so you can quickly head down to zero. And the, the Federal Reserve is really the only central bank with the capability of producing of providing major rate cuts. And the rate, any rate cuts won't really help the economy. I mean, that, that should be clear. What rate cuts do is they validate the drop in long-term interest rates. And those very low long-term interest rates, 110 on a 10-year treasury, make it very difficult for people to avoid stocks. And so what, what I think lower rates really do is they put a floor under global stocks. So I think they should do it, but I think they should take their time because we're only in the early chapters of what this virus could mean for the global economy. John, we've gone almost bear market, negative 17% or so at the worst, and we're back up to a correction level. I mean, we're not supposed to be hysterical at a correction level. Yeah, the question I heard a lot over the last 24 hours is whether you should reach for the post Q4 2018 playbook and whether you just ride this well, rally now. I think, Tom, things are very well, different compared to what they were 18 months ago. Let's ask David Kelly. I mean, what's the compare and contrast here if it's not Q4 2018? What are you comparing this to, Dr. Kelly? Well, of course, the whole point is that there isn't an easy playbook. If there was an easy playbook, the uncertainty wouldn't be as great and the yep. markets would bounce back faster. I think you know it's one of those cases where you've got to think, well, what do we know and what don't we know? There's a lot we don't know. We don't know how far this virus is going to spread. We don't know how many of the people this virus is sadly going to kill. What we do know is it's not going to last forever. I mean, this is not a multi-year event. Um, it will take a while to get a vaccine up and running, but I'm sure that they will get that done. You know, so 12 to 18 months down the road, we're going to be talking about the recovery from whatever this was. And I think for long-term investors, then what you have to think about is, well, what do I own that can ride out the storm? This is when good balance sheets matter. What, what do I own that can ride out the storm and can benefit from a rebound? So I think people need to take a long-term view on this. But, you know, this could, the whole point is this could get very bad for the global economy because this, this virus is just lethal enough for everybody to pay attention and for it to slow down the global economy and cause social distancing and so forth. And then just, it seems to be contagious enough that it could become very widespread. But we really still have some some questions in that. So there, there's, there's tough times ahead. I mean, I think the way to think about this is 2020 was going to be the year of the election. That, that script is gone. 2020 is the year of the virus. But if you're an investor, you should be investing not just for 2020, but also 2021, 2022, and so forth. So you've got to take a long-term view. We don't know how deep it will be. But we do kind of know how long it will last. So, David, if you want to take a long view and you don't think that rate cuts are really going to do that much in the short term, yeah. what are you doing in terms of selling into the, the brief rally or sort of how are you trying to take advantage of the big swings one direction or another uh, that seem to be driven by sentiment right now? Well, uh, of course, uh, you know, our portfolio managers are working very, uh, very hard on this at a, at a micro level. I mean, I think for long-term investors, 
the sort of advice I'd give is, is you know, just is, the question is not when. Do not try and get the timing of this right. The question is what. Do you have a portfolio that is appropriate for where you are in life? And are you over-invested in stuff that's just too expensive? So I think this is a time to be somewhat conservative. Make sure that you're, you're, you're owning companies with good balance sheets, with good cash flow, with a, an ability right. to wide out what could be, you know, a, a pretty rough year. What are you doing to adjust your economic growth numbers? I mean, let's get out front of Bruce Kasman and your acclaimed weekly prospects Friday afternoon. David Kelly, what are you doing in terms of the economic call wrapped around this G7 meeting? It's, um, it's, it's, very, it's very tricky. I mean, the problem is that traditional macroeconomic models are not going to give you the answer here. Um, in fact, it's also, if this turns into a recession, it's a very unusual recession because this one will be centered now, I think, in the service sector. You know, I know global manufacturing just hit its worst number since May of 2009, the global PMIs yesterday. But, but actually, the real risk <coughs> is in global, uh, global services, and we haven't seen that. So we just don't know, you know, if you take entertainment, um, hotels, airlines, travel, you add all that together, how much of a drag does that put in the economy? It's very hard to model this. So we're, we're, we're feeling in the dark a little bit here. It's, uh, I, think the, I, I think we may try and look at this more from an employment perspective rather than a demand perspective, because the usual models of you know, pent-up demand, cyclical goods, that's not going to drive this, these economic models. So we're going to have to think a little bit more about what it really means for the employment decision by companies, particularly companies um, in the service sectors. And it yeah. takes us, take us a little while to get, to get a, a handle on that. Well, David, this is really important then, because we can put together some policies that help these companies through this rough part yeah. of the economy through the early part of 2020. What would you like to see from policymakers with that in mind? Well, yeah, I, th- I think certainly some some significant help from the Small Business Administration. I mean, the, there there are some companies, of course, who are over levered uh, for for bad reasons. You know, and you don't want to sort of have a moral hazard issue here. But I, I think there are a lot of smaller companies, particularly in those uh, tourism, travel, entertainment, leisure sectors, who are going to be really strapped for cash flow. And I think anything the government can do to um, you know extend low interest loans, maybe. Uh, give them some sort of tax break, something to help small businesses and entertainment leisure ind- industry businesses to keep them all afloat um, through 20, uh, 2000 and, um, uh, 2020 would be a, a very good thing. And also things to, to perhaps help companies keep people employed and, and you know, just don't, be, don't lay off all workers just because business is slowing down. So you've got to try and focus on that point too. This, David, is actually where I have a little bit of faith in the ECB. There's been so much talk in markets that they don't have any bullets left. They can't cut rates. They can't do more QE. I actually think they already have the tools in place to do some targeted lending, don't they? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's right. And I think we, I think we, this is a, a this is, there aren't many things that we can do in, on a macro level to try and help things out because this is not something, you know, again, if you have a problem which is in the cyclical sector and things like housing, you cut mortgage rates, people want to buy houses. Cutting mortgage rates is not going to make you want to go to the theater. Um, and so, that, so that's, that's a problem. But I think, yes, a small business lending, cheaper lending, but also I think you may need something on the fiscal yeah. side so that it's, we're not encouraging banks just to lose money on this. We're going to have to have some way uh, of remunerating lenders um, or otherwise getting money to small businesses to, to make them, you know, help them ride this out. Uh, David Kelly, thank you so much. For Thanks, David. Greatly appreciate hey, it this morning. Good brief there. And, of course, across their wide platform, I'm sure. 
Christopher Verone does something, folks, I'm a big believer in, is he refuses to catch the knife in the dark. That's called stochastic analysis. He and I share an affection for not doing stochastic analysis, John, which means you've got to find the trend. John, have you seen the trend in the last 48 hours? Is it out there somewhere? The last 48 hours, the trend looks a little bit better than what it looked like maybe a week ago. Are you comfortable with this? Chris Farone, strategist partner and head of technical and macro strategy, joins us now. How comfortable are you with the rally? Well, these moves are never meant to be comfortable. Let's get that on the record here. And I think when you go back and you look historically at how markets bottom, it's a process and there's drama involved and it's never easy. Went back and we looked at the 98 low, the 2011 low, and the 2016 low. That initial decline, that bang, uh, as we call it, always got you within about 80% of what was ultimately the final low. So you know, let's go back to the low last week, somewhere around 28.25, 28.50. I would feel pretty good in saying I would guess we're within 80 or 90% of what will be the final low of this move. But I don't want to get too cute. You have price extremes and you have sentiment extremes. While this may be a process, I think we're close enough where the conditions for a tradable low are certainly in place. Talk to me about the sentiment extremes. Yeah. When you look at the options market right now, have we washed things? out? What does that look like at the moment? Yeah, that is the one place where I think the signals are probably most compelling here. We had one of the biggest backwardations in the VIX curve that we've ever seen. Uh, Spot VIX was trading almost 25 points above the third month future. So certainly extreme there. Put call ratios have spiked for five days in a row. That is very, very rare. And historically, it's very, very bullish. I'm wondering going forward, the marginal buyer, who you're looking at to sort of tip the difference. I mean, a lot of people are watching the mom and pop investor to see whether they're going to withdraw uh, funds. How much, how closely do you pay attention to that? I mean, I say this out of respect, but I think this whole cycle, the mom and pop investor has really been irrelevant. This hasn't been the driver of this bull market. This bull market has been driven by the corporations themselves, right? And you get bond yields down, that's Uh, an incentive for more buybacks. And I think, secondly, the big buyer or the big player in this cycle has been passive, right? And what is very, very tied to passive is 401k money every two weeks. So I think if we're going to make a structural call, I think the employment data is going to be really important given the extent to which um, they were such a big driver of passive. Do you expect that companies uh, will come back in here and do share buybacks, given the fact that their shares are discounted substantially from where they were a couple weeks you ago? You know what's always been interesting? Every time we've gotten bond yields lower so quickly over such a fast period, we've actually seen Apple come into the debt market uh, and do something. That, and that's kind of provided some type of a confidence low. So I'm actually really curious to see if you see some big tech companies <coughs> enter the debt markets and issue right. some bonds here. Let's talk trend-based technical analysis. It's always fun to do on radio. We'll try to do that with folks without people driving off uh, the road as they can. How do you form a bottom? Is it is it John Maggie of a double bottom and up yeah. you go? Is it is it point and figure of a low uh, a low pole top of Hugh Blumenthal of 1949? How does Chris Verone structurally see a bottom in SPX? Uh, we use a phrase where we call a bang and a whimper. The bang is that initial climactic high drama decline. That That's when we week. get the decent cup of coffee here, and then the whimper is when we realize 
And then it's the, inedible. the whimper Bang, is a couple whimper. weeks or a where couple months later where you've had time to justify everything that can go wrong. You see the EPS downgrades. You see the growth downgrades. And it always feels worse on that whimper. But the internals are actually better. You tend to see fewer stocks breaking down, less uh, volatility. So that's a pretty decent playbook. I think we okay. had the bang. Last week was the bang. The whimper might be in front Explain of us. Explain it. I'm death on this, folks. Just full disclosure here. The the, the death cross, the, the, the live cross cross or well thank god i haven't seen that in the last 48 hours to me the death cross is the greatest amount of technical malarkey ever known to mankind am i on the verone page yeah i i would tend to agree with that i think what's more important is when you look at malarkey is this... a joe biden phrase we oh, should do as a disclaimer the vice president of the united states uses that word on super tuesday continue when you look at the setup preceding the last several weeks we entered this period with 80 percent of stocks in the s p in an uptrend we entered this period with 17 of 20 uh, of 20 G20 markets recently making a new 52-week high. That is typically not where bear markets come from. Bear markets are often preceded with decay from the inside. Markets rolling over, we tend to see it in credit conditions as well, credit leading lower. That didn't precede this decline. So I think if this is going to be the start of some bigger problem, and that's not our call, but if this is the start of some bigger problem, we're going to learn that over time. Yeah, I think to see the end of the bull market, you've got to believe that we're going to have a recession in the United States, or at least you've got to believe the labor market gets hit in a material way. Can you imagine a bear market in America with the setup that we have, absent a U.S. recession? Well, this is where I might push back a little bit, Jonathan. I think we've had three bear markets over the last 10 years. I think 2011 was a bear market. I think 2015, 2016 was one. I think 18 was one as well. I recognize we never got S&P down 20, but you had 75% of all global stocks yeah. down 20% or more. So, you know, one thing we always tell clients and we write in our own work is we just reject the idea. It's a myth of a 10-year bull market. There have been some meaningful shakeouts uh, along the way. If you're just joining us, Bloomberg Radio Worldwide with huge news flow this morning. We've had a green and then we've really pulled back here nicely with red and green on the screen. Uh, S&P futures flat right now. With us is Christopher Verona, Strategist Research Partners, as we try to glean the market direction. John? Just getting a headline from Taro Aso, the Japanese finance minister, that that G7 teleconference call with finance ministers mm. has been held. Waiting to see what the statement is. That headline just coming across the Bloomberg. They've so had the call? Yes. We decided to publish a G7 statement on this. So it's the Japanese finance oh, minister okay. driving the news flow at the moment. I haven't seen the <clears> statement <throat> yet, but just for anyone listening right now, this news is starting to come out. This call has been taken place. Well, that's a pullback place. that we've seen very clearly. The call has taken yeah. place. Now the finance ministers yeah. are starting to release some of the details of that call. Chris, to the technicals here, and, and you did great work on this in your latest deck, high beta low beta. Describe what beta is to our audience. And do you choose the volatile, the high beta, or do you choose the low, the toothpaste companies to be in? I think what's been remarkable about the last several weeks is for a very risk-off macro environment, things like staples and utilities have been flushed and rinsed just like every other group, right? There was that indiscriminate selling that you often see towards the end of these corrective phases. Now, what we've seen historically coming off of a low, the higher beta, the higher volatile stocks tend to be pretty big outperformers. So I think if you're looking for clues over the next couple of weeks, that's going to be really important. Another clue has been the Russell 2000 small and mid-cap yeah. shares, which have consistently underperformed year after year yeah. and are down to almost twice as much or more than twice as much as the S&P 500 year to date. I'm trying to understand the signal from that because typically yeah. that's pretty bearish. I completely disagree. Uh, I respectfully disagree. When you look historically- well, We don't have any respect here. Continue. Yeah, when, it's fine. When you look historically- 
when you look historically in the great secular bull markets of all time, 1946 to 1966, 1982 to 2000, small caps are massive underperformers in both of those periods. Small caps underperform always in secular bull markets because if you're still a small cap 10 years into advance, what have you done wrong? Right? Why are you still small cap stock 10 years into a rally? Shouldn't you have graduated? Yeah. And conversely, the bad large caps, you know where they go? They go down, right? The bad mid caps, they go down the cap scale. So by the 10, 15 years into an advance, you're left with the most mm-hmm. undesirable constituent set. Chris Verone there, strategist partner and head of technical and macro strategy. Right now, to get us not to March 18th, but far more importantly, to get us to tonight, we have truly one of the leaders in doing more intelligent polling. Mohammed Yunus is editor-in-chief with Gallup, and he joins us now on the way they look at the presidential horse race, and they look at it much differently than, you know, numbers here and numbers there. Mohammed, what is the key insight of your new data released this morning? Um, well, this morning uh, and a little, little later tonight, we will officially be releasing our new presidential approval number. Uh, we have President Trump at 47 percent approval, 51 percent disapproval. Um, that's a little bit low from his high, which he came uh, to right after the impeachment uh, situation unfolded. But uh, more importantly, um, you know, what you were just discussing in your earlier segment is really, I think, where a huge uh, question is for us at Gallup that we'll track, which is the economy and how people feel about it. Um, the, the president tends to get his best numbers on that. 63% of Americans approve of how he's managing the economy. We know from previous elections that the economy is the number one issue that people mention when we ask, you know, what do you think about when you're voting for president? Um, it's quickly followed by health care and immigration. So the concern with the virus, the market reaction last week, um, and what that means for Americans and their assessment of their economic outlook as we get closer to November, are really going to be key. Um, the other critical metric, I think, for today, really, Super Tuesday, in this uh, competition we see unfolding very dramatically now between Vice President Biden and Senator Sanders, is uh, whether or not Americans will vote for a socialist. Uh, right now, we ask Americans and have for years, uh, would you vote for somebody who is qualified uh, but happens to be black, Hispanic, gay or lesbian, et cetera? Uh, what, the most resistance of all of the categories we ask, including atheist, is actually socialist. So 53% of Americans say they would not vote for a socialist. 43% say they would. Just to give you uh, listeners a comparison, 96% they say they vote for a black candidate, 94 for a Hispanic. So um, the socialism thing is still a major challenge uh, on the national level, at least. Of course, within the Democratic Party, uh, there are different attitudes than at the national level. But obviously the debate that Democrats are having now is, um, is that going to be enough uh, to beat President Trump? We've been asking Democrats what they prioritize in this election, uh, whether they want to vote for somebody right. they agree with on the issues or beat President Trump. And beating President Trump is their priority. So, Mohammed, it makes me wonder, why does Senator Sanders do so well in the head-to-head polls with the President of the United States? Um, it, it really depends on uh, how those polls are gathered and how um, many people are answering the really represent the population in those states. State-to-state polling is very challenging here in the United States. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is turnout. So people can say what they want in a poll, uh, but if these candidates can't really get people out on the day to vote, uh, and we saw Senator Sanders, for example, in Nevada, really getting aggressive in trying to get people to vote early, um, it's still, you know, the polls are helpful state to state, but ultimately we'll have to see tonight where things 
lie. Um, a really critical part in some of these states is going to be uh, demographics. So we saw South Carolina and the black vote really sort of bring President Biden much uh, more strongly into the forefront of the race. Um, but, you know, he's going to have challenges in other places where you have younger voters um, and people that are much more comfortable with uh, questioning the establishment and the status quo of yeah. people who gravitate more towards um, a narrative that Senator Sanders has been providing. Mohammed, just to just to wrap things up, I'm wondering, from your perspective with the economy, how closely tied is sentiment to the stock market versus just whether people can get jobs? That's a great question. Um, there isn't an easy answer because it tends to change. Um, one of the challenges in giving a straight answer to that really is the Great Recession. Because people uh, that are assessing the economy today probably remember that and associate the market very strongly with um, unemployment, you know, it's going to be hard to, to imagine a reality where the market tanks and people still feel great about uh, the economy. Uh, one thing that's interesting um, that we found over time is that people claim at least to be less invested in the economy than they were uh, in the market, excuse me, than they were in 2008. So when you compare um, I'm asking Americans, do you have money in the stock market in 2008? There are 10 percent fewer Americans today that say they have money in the stock market, which is pretty remarkable considering how much growth we see yeah. in the stock market. Extremely thoughtful. Muhammad Yunus, thank you so much. It is different polling that from Gallup uh, this morning. To bring Diane Swank, Grant Thornton, Chief Economist. She joins us on the phone for more. Diane, fantastic to have you with us. Your expectations and how much weight you'll put on the data as the week grows older. Well, it is important. We are going to see a sort of bounce back or a rebound to the downside from the unseasonably mild winter weather. Remember, we got 44,000 construction worker jobs that added to that 225,000 in January with unseasonably mild winter weather. We got the ISM on manufacturing out, and the coronavirus did show up as one of the issues disrupting production activity. We know mining is going to continue to decline, and then we've got the ongoing restructuring in retail with retail closing. So I think we're going to get a pretty weak number, around 140,000 or so, which will have only a small tinge of the coronavirus in it, but we are coming off that high number in January. It's a bit of a, you know, sort of snap back to normal after that unseasonally mild weather boosted the January figure. Diane, I want you to pick up on the coronavirus effect and how bad it could be in the United States. A lot of people saying that the U.S. is somewhat immune to the severe effects that we saw over in China. But if you do get some sort of slowdown, how much could employment be reduced? It's a great question. Actually, I don't think we are immune to the effects. I think that's a foolish way to look at it. And of course, I'm coming from someone whose child just returned from Japan and another child who's severely uh, asthmatic and cannot afford to get pneumonia. And we already went through the swine flu in my family. So I'm very aware of how these things work. But on the other side of it, I think it's very important. We've already seen, I've lost count of the number of cancellations. I can't go to a meeting that I have at the Chicago Fed on Friday this week because my daughter just came back from Japan. These are really important because those kind of interruptions to business activity, staying at home, the nesting, the sort of preparing to deal with a larger contagion is going to have an impact on the U.S. economy. Travel plans have already been canceled. The airlines are being really hard hit. And we're looking at about a half percent growth in the first half of the year. That will nudge up the unemployment rate. Well, that's right where I wanted to go is a linkage of that half percent of real GDP 
then what is the mathematics to bring that over to the weekly claims or to the monthly non-farm payroll statistic? You know, we're not going to see that for a couple of weeks yet. I don't think we'll see this week the uptick in furloughs and layoffs related to the coronavirus. I think that's going to show up more as we move into March. There's a lag between when people first get furloughed and the layoffs um, on how they're going to show up in the numbers. But I think as we get into right. March, you're going to start to really see these numbers, <clears throat> and you'll dip below that 100,000 threshold right. we need to keep the unemployment rate steady. Diane Swank with us, folks, with Grant Thornton, and, of course, with her Michigan academics and her hair. Heritage with uh, Chicago uh, straddling the line between uh, the White Sox and the Cubs. Always good to speak to her of the spirit of the Midwest. Diane, you know well that path out of Chicago down south into the auto heartland, all the auto suppliers and such. How are they doing in the Midwest right now? So right now, the automakers have done pretty well at being able to sort of stem shortages and resource supply. That said, the smallest suppliers, the middle market suppliers that trickle up into the automakers are starting to have real problems. We already know places like Long Beach, where a lot of parts and imports from China come in, the port is half of the longshoremen have been laid off there. And I think that's very important because you're going to start to see these part shortages work their way through the manufacturing sector much more dramatically as we get into the first weeks of March. Things that could keep going because they prepared for the Lunar New Year are now starting to catch up with them. So for the moment, we're starting to see it trickle in, but it will compound fairly rapidly as we get into the weeks of March. Diane, this is such an important point, especially as we talk about some sort of policy response with the G7 meeting today and financial uh, ministers meeting and central bankers. The question is, how much does that offset furloughed workers, people not getting paid because there just isn't business, whether it's at a convention or a hotel or an airline. And I'm wondering, what's the precedent historically for policymakers to step in and actually ameliorate some of the effects of missed paychecks uh, from people who are probably on the margins less capable of offsetting that lost income? Well, we don't have a lot of precedent except for when we have natural disasters, and the Fed actually can do some guidance when it cuts rates, I think, by a half percent. In it, at its March meeting, we'll see a decisive move there. But we also can see guidance in terms of allowing consumers who have been laid off and businesses that have been um, furloughed or taking the brunt of this and unable to fully service their debt obligations. There is some leeway in their guidance to be able to allow them to give them a little room and a little space. It's something that China's looking at. They're ordering it, a little different than in the United States, and it's something that Italy is looking at now as well. I've never asked this question. It's a good question for Diane Swank. If I'm employed in Long Beach, as an example, and I'm laid off, what do I get when I go in for jobless claims? You know, how much do I get X percent of my salary? Do you know, do I make money doing this? What, What do you get? You don't make money doing it. It's still less than what you get if you're earning your um, your pay, and you're certainly not working overtime hours, and it reduces hours work. But you do, you know, if you don't think the layoff is going to be temporary, you do go ahead and apply for unemployment insurance. We often see that um, the ripple effects from strikes take a while from yeah. not the striking workers, but the other workers. It takes a while for people to actually apply for unemployment insurance yeah. because they think they're going to be called back quickly. How does that work in England, John? Do they have weekly jobless claims in England? We don't get the data the way you guys get the data, but we do have a claimant account. Do you you get, does the government like step in much more overtly in socialist Great Britain versus socialist Great Britain? He's never been laid off. That's true. Britain. 
I don't know. I'm just, you know. I'm, well, you know, in, in all fairness, let's bring this up as well. The U.K. has now warned that, um, it, you know, if we don't take care of this and don't contain this, yeah. it could be 20% of the labor force that's out sick. And so many people say, well, you know, these efforts to contain it are causing the economic shocks. But if you don't contain it, you have an even larger yeah, but, economic impact on your labor force unable to earn. I mean, we're not talking G7, 60,000 feet stuff, John, but this is germane to like what could actually happen in April. This is the important conversation we've been trying to have on this program for the last couple of weeks, that interest rate cuts aren't the remedy we need right here, right now. They what can't, what, they what can't. we need is a set of tools, Diane. They're going to stop this economic exactly. shock that would otherwise be temporary from becoming a financial shock that lasts a whole exactly. lot longer. They're looking at doing that, as you say, in Italy, with tax credits for struggling companies. In China, they're working with the banks as well. What tools do we have available in America? Well, this is, you know, we have much more marginalized tools, and I don't think, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether Congress has more tools with fiscal policy. We have some guidance that the Fed can issue and make it easier with the Community Reinvestment Act to deal with this as a crisis and to say be more lenient, and, you know, we will be more lenient with you as your regulator. That's important, but more broadly, you need fiscal policy that deals with this more directly, and, you know, just calling for rate cuts doesn't cure what ails us literally in terms of the coronavirus. It doesn't open idle factories or open convention centers that have been shuttered because of this, but we can use fiscal policy to span the issue so that it doesn't morph into a financial crisis, as you said, Jonathan. And and already last week, we saw the junk bond market basically seize up. That's really important right now, given some of the inflated ratings we've seen on bonds that could dip into that junk bond status. Diane Swank, what is quote-unquote fiscal policy to X percent of people that see reduced wages, they're laid off, they take extra vacation days or whatever. Are you advocating fiscal helicopter money or are you advocating a road between Peoria and Moline? Well, it's not really um, fiscal helicopter money. It is actually, you know, in, in Hong Kong, they're actually giving cash checks out to people, and even that's not enough to get people who are still afraid to go out, out exactly. to go out and spend. But it is important for people to have money to be able to buy groceries. And, you know, you're talking about people being able to pay for rent and thinking about some kind of plans that deal, give people more of a bridge and just unemployment insurance or make unemployment insurance temporarily a little more generous and kick in much more rapidly. I I think those are the things that we need to be thinking about right now. And those are the things, you know, we haven't been thinking about our automatic stabilizers. The Fed has been pleading, along with central banks the world over, with, you know, the fiscal um, Congress and fiscal policy setters, elected officials, to start thinking about how would they deal with the recession. Well, this one is really unique. This kind of economic disruption is really unique and will require some effort by Congress to get it right. Diane, just real quick here, how convinced are you about a doom loop that will take hold uh, with supply and demand kind of circling each other down if there isn't some sort of fiscal response? Well, I doubt, I doubt there won't be any fiscal response. I do think there will be. The question is, will it be the right fiscal response? Um, I'm still hopeful. I have to stay hopeful, and I think that's the way we oh. have to stay. And, and it's remarkable how resilient we've been, but we are talking about what's a, you know, a, a growth recession here in the United States and what's, you know, in the rest of the world, for all intents and purposes, a recession right. in the first half of the year. Diane, thank you so much. Diane Swank with Grant Thornton. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.